News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it's been a few days now since the bodies of two young girls were found in southwest Quebec, but the search for their father continues today. But the tone of that search seems to be well, changing a little bit. Global Na- National Reporter joins us now from Quebec this morning. It's Mike Armstrong. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. So how is this search changing? Great question, because police aren't really saying. They sent out a tweet last night about 10 o'clock saying that they're going to modify their strategy Uh, that they're changing strategy as a result of evidence that they've collected. They're just not saying what that evidence is. Uh, They did collect some um, objects at the scene uh, where the girls were found on Saturday, uh, but they haven't said what those objects might have been. They also have performed uh, the autopsies and the results are in, but those results aren't being uh, released. So as far as what police are going to be doing, it seems there may be fewer people on the ground today And we're being told that the PR cops, actually, who've been keeping us uh, informed, won't be speaking until there is uh, until there's something new, until there are new developments. And it it feels like it may be as a result of the excessive, perhaps, uh, media attention this has gotten and the possibility that it's generated too many unfounded tips. Uh, there's been so much attention. Yeah. Uh, they've even had people turning up in the forest to try to help. And it's, at one point they said, we can't use dogs now because of the scents. Uh, and it's also sort of become upsetting to people who live in the area who are quite nervous, uh, legitimately, with the possibility that there's a, um, well, a murderer on the loose in the, in the area. Yeah, how I noticed that this story is actually splashed all over the British tabloids, too, which I thought was interesting. Um, mm. h- how intense has the search been, Mike? Very. I mean, you're talking about uh, police officers literally uh, on on foot or on ATVs, uh, looking in ditches, uh, going through the forest. And at the same time, you've got a Transport Canada uh, plane overhead with a thermal camera uh, looking down at the ground. So they are really turning over uh, uh, this area where they're searching. They originally had been looking in a 15 square kilometer uh, area, and they had sort of cordoned it off and were trying to make sure that nothing, nobody, escaped from that area. They expanded that yesterday to 50 square kilometers, uh, but we really don't know anything. I mean, uh, Martin Carpentier at this point could be on the run, he could be hiding, he could even be dead, uh, and he might not be inside that perimeter. I was speaking to a survival expert yesterday who said, you know what, um, there's a uh, motivation when you're trying to evade police and, and a stress that probably that does allow you to push your body harder than you might have been able to normally. And so there's a chance that he is outside that perimeter. He's gotten further than police thought. It could be as simple as him finding a bicycle or something and, and having made his way outside the perimeter. And, and maybe that's why police can't find him. I understand that the mother also kind of spoke publicly, sort of, in the last couple of days. It was heartbreaking. Uh, Police announced uh, Monday afternoon that the mother would make a statement. Uh, She, uh, on Monday afternoon, about 3.30, I guess, uh, walked up, flanked by friends and family. Uh, Her face absolutely gutted uh, with pain. Um, She walked to the gazebo uh, in, in Lévis, Quebec City, uh, where they on the south shore of Quebec City, where a memorial has been set up by the local scout troop. Uh, Nora, the 11-year-old, was a member of scouts, and so there are all these 
stuffed animals and pictures mm. and candles and notes that have been left. And she walked up with her family. She went into the gazebo for probably about 15 or 20 minutes, crying the whole time, and then stepped up to the microphones and said a few words. She uh, she thanked police for their work. She thanked public the public for uh, their support. She called the girls her princesses of love and her reason for living. And then she asked them to be her stars in the night and uh, to shine her way uh, through this pain. Oh. It was just a, a gut-wrenching thing to see. Yeah, heartbreaking. All right, Mike, thank you very much for the update. Thank you. That is Mike Armstrong, Global News National reporter, uh, talking about the situation in Quebec where they are still searching for Martin Carpentier, the father of those two girls who were found dead, but the search is changing. Not as much information from the police and waiting now to find out what is this new evidence that they seem to have come across, but we'll keep you updated on that. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the Vancouver Park Board has had a lot of scrutiny upon it in the last couple of weeks, really kind of heightened the last couple of days. Two meetings over which they were discussing the idea of banning overnight camping. Let's talk about what it is that they have finally voted on, which happened last night. Joining us now is Nikki Reitmeyer. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. I'm actually down here at Strathcona Park right now. You can probably hear some industrial equipment behind me running because, of course, this is a pretty industrial area outside of the park itself where, you know, it looks quite lovely this morning. The sun is shining. Yeah. There's lots of flowers here. As you've heard, there's lots of gardens here. There's a tennis court here. And there's also dozens and dozens and dozens of campers here set up in tents, set up with tarps, taking over the tennis court, basically, in a lot of the surrounding area. All right. So this is the subject, this particular park area of this whole park board thing that happened last night. So what went on? Yeah, they stayed up really late last night and the Vancouver Park Board voted 4-3 in favor to allow overnight camping. I was so surprised when I woke up this morning and I saw that they had allowed overnight camping because I listened for about an hour to the meeting last night and the general consensus from people who called in is that most seemed to disagree with it. Even if they disagreed with each other, they both seemed to disagree with the idea of overnight camping for a variety of reasons. So take a listen to some of the people who were against the bylaw from the perspective of being advocates for the homeless. I don't like to go to parks and see them a mess. I don't like to see needles. I don't like to see condoms. I don't think that people should say there were fires under swings. It's just outrageous that this kind of behavior is tolerated. I'm against the Parks Board attempting to solve the homelessness crisis when it is hopelessly ill-equipped financially and operationally to do so. My points relate to the practicality of actual enforcement of bylaw rules and the health implications of using our parks as campgrounds. As other speakers have mentioned, I see this bylaw as a weak attempt to dump the homeless problem on the Parks Board because no one else wants to deal with it or pay for it. Parks are not campgrounds, and many have no or very limited sewage and water facilities, none of which were designed for intense camping use, and so I don't believe parks can hygienically support overnight campers. Will the Parks Board be providing private security and incident response to criminal activity on parkland, or will this responsibility rest with the VPD? Has any analysis even been done on the, op- the additional cost of security, and how will this affect the overtaxed VPD's many other obligations? All right, that's interesting, Nikki, because like when we spoke to Trisha Barker yesterday, Park Board Commissioner, about this, uh, I thought this bylaw was supposed to be an effort to give them a legal leg to stand on if they wanted to remove homeless people from parks. 
Yeah, we should also just clarify, those were not the advocates for the homeless people that you just heard there. Those were the people that were against people camping in the park. I just need to clarify that really yes. quickly. But yeah, so, so essentially this allows them to regulate the camping in the parks a little bit more. So now, as of 7 a.m., in theory, they'd be able to say to people, okay, you got to move along. And when people do set up camps, they have to do so in a three-by-three-meter area. They have to do so a certain many meters. I think it's 25 meters away from a school or from a playground. However, it does not apply to encampments. So Strathcona residents who called into that meeting last night who wanted to see this encampment gone where I'm standing now, well, this rule, this new change where people have to leave at 7 a.m. is not going to apply to them. It comes in line with the BC Supreme Court ruling, which allows people to camp overnight, but it doesn't apply to encampments. And for other everyone else, I guess they'll have to be gone by 7 a.m. in theory. Okay, so now they have to have, what, another five meetings to figure out what encampments, the actual legal definition of that is. But let's also hear from some of the people who were advocates of this. Guess what? I'm a recovered meth addict. I've been clean for seven years. And I was homeless until two and a half years ago. I was thrown into the street life as a 14-year-old youth. So I'm no stranger to homelessness. I support allowing people to camp overnight in parks. I do not support any of the amendments. I hope the irony isn't lost on those to whom I'm speaking, that certain individuals feel the need to bemoan the loss of their outdoor space when speaking in regards to those who have no indoors to go to at all. I consider myself to be a Strathcona resident, and my daughter routinely plays in both McLean and Strathcona parks. We are not scared. The people who live in the local parks are my neighbors. I introduce myself as the firekeeper of the sacred fire at Strathcona Park Tenting Community. This meeting is inaccessible and is online. It is very hard for homeless people to participate. To allow overnight camping means that people are displaced every single morning where more displacement is ever traumatizing. It is entirely problematic to have a board composed of settlers and almost exclusively settlers calling in to comment on what happens with Indigenous land. Can you all imagine housed people finding it acceptable to have unhoused people speak on and create the laws that structure and control their lives? All right, so clearly very fired up and passionate on both sides there, Nikki. So what is the end result here? The end result is that the Vancouver Park Board has voted 4-3 to allow overnight camping in city parks, which I was very surprised to hear. However, this could, in theory, give them more right. opportunity to regulate overnight camping, although it won't apply to encampments. Okay, well, we'll have to see what all of that ends up meaning. But, Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. I think certainly this year there will be a, a major impact on, on prices and on, on availability at the grocery store. Um, again, we're about 3,800 workers short at the beginning of the season. Now, that was University of Calgary researcher Robert Falconer. He talked to us yesterday morning, and we were discussing the issue of higher prices at the grocery store that might result because of a shortage of temporary foreign workers due to the whole COVID-19 pandemic situation. So we wanted to talk more about food security, what impact all of this might have, particularly on you and your pocketbook. So joining us now is Dr. Evan Fraser, director of the Errol Food Institute at the University of Guelph. Dr. Fraser, thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Good morning. 
I would imagine this is a, a time that you've been kind of very furiously studying these food supply systems. And do you see some points of concern there? Oh, it's been a, uh, an absolutely remarkable, what is it, four months now? I've lost track. We've all lost track in yeah. since the lockdown. I think it's a bit about four months. And, and it's, it's really pretty amazing. I, I personally think that, that when we look back on this time after perhaps healthcare and the, uh, we'll see the food system in all its forms as the biggest, most impacted section of the society because of COVID. And, and so it's, it's, it, this, this is a big deal. Certainly this is the biggest deal that has ever happened in, in my career. And where do you think the strain has showed the most? Oh gosh. Well, I mean, I think there's probably three or four key areas, which are, which are all important. And, and the first one is actually all that panic buying that happened early on in the, in the, in the process. And right. I, actually, I don't think that's that significant. I mean, the grocery stores re- responded remarkably well and uh, the system has actually remained remarkably intact. So one of the first things I think is is that, that that for most Canadians we've enjoyed safe, healthy, affordable food throughout this period of time with remarkably few disruptions. There have been disruptions, but but I think there's relatively small disruptions. A huge impact, of course, on the restaurant industry, um, and that's a big big that caused itself. Uh, not only the loss of about a million jobs and tens of thousands of people losing their businesses and their dreams, but also the supply chain that were feeding the restaurant industries had to shift. So, like weird, we became aware of weird things, like um, like most Canadians, uh, most of the potatoes consumed in right. Canada are consumed as French fries in restaurants. That market collapsed, and then of course the home baking spike. So, so there's weird things happening linked with the supply chains reorganizing after the restaurants were closed that are in addition to the loss of the jobs and um, uh, associated with that directly. Then there's the huge issue that we've uh, heard about with the um, uh, the workers, and, and there's two broad categories here. There's all the workers that tested positive for COVID in our meatpacking plants that have caused major disruptions, not only for those poor people that got sick and, and, and a number of them died, but also the, um, uh, the farmers that depend on these humongous meatpacking plants to, uh, to sell their markets into. So that's having big effects on farm incomes uh, as well as food prices. Uh, the other big labor issue, of course, is the temporary foreign workers that you've referred to at the mm-hmm. top end of this interview. And, um, and goodness, I mean, 60,000 workers from Latin America, the Caribbean, come to Canada every year for part-time temporary jobs. And, uh, and not only have they struggled to get in the country, not only have the farmers struggled to uh, allow for social distancing in Ontario in particular, but also in BC, we've seen big cases of um, flare-ups of the virus within those communities. So lots of impacts yeah. there, which have been really serious. So with and all then those... the final effect, yep. well, so then the final effect is food insecurity. I mean, globally and in Canada, we see, because of the lost incomes and whatnot, we see huge effects on food insecurity. So our food banks have never been busier. The federal government put $100 million into food banks early in this process, or emergency food relief um, early in the lockdown, which is unprecedented. And the United Nations says there's going to be a doubling of hungry people on the planet as a result of the economic costs of COVID. So that would be the fourth and final you know, big impact right. is the rise in food insecurity. So given all those extraordinary pressures that you just kind of laid out there, how what has that told us about the flexibility of our system? Yeah, well, I mean, we've found some... Well, first of all, I still stand by what I said at the beginning of our conversation, which is that the system actually, for most of us, has proved to be remarkably resilient. Mm-hmm. This is a huge shock, and I was expecting far worse problems of maintaining supply in grocery stores at the beginning. I, I was really concerned um, that we would ha- struggle to keep the grocery stores filled 
back in March and April. And actually, this, the, the, the grocery system, the food retail system, has proved remarkably resilient in finding, finding supplies and keeping supply chains open despite all these pressures. So I'd like to say thank you to the truckers and the grocery store clerks yes. and all that. And, you know, boy, our exposure to labor and our challenges associated with labor and keeping key parts of our plant open because it's, it's hard. And, and, and here I think there's an irony that some of the people that we all depend on most for our food security are the least well compensated, generally have mm-hmm. the poorest paid jobs or temporary workers or in, temporary Canadians, like they're, in, they're in precarious immigration status. So there's an irony here that the people we depend on the most to keep our food system running actually are in some ways amongst the worst treated. Right. Do you, and that, that's a problem. Dr. Fraser, moving forward then, as we look to some kind of normalcy, right, in the months and few years ahead, do you see effects of this staying with us? Like, will we see higher prices? Is it a stronger supply chain? Yeah, I, I, I think the answer to all those questions is likely yes. My suspicion is that... Um, uh, for instance, the produce farmers, they are, they are going to be thinking, oh, my goodness, we can't depend on these temporary foreign workers like we used to. Um, maybe with low interest rates, because interest rates are very low, we should make, start making invest, big investments in automation. So my, my guess is that a lot of farmers are likely thinking about maybe buying an extra farm, consolidating some, far, some farmland, and moving to more automation. I'm not saying that's necessarily going to be a, a good thing, and that there's problems with that, but but I bet a lot of farmers are thinking along those lines. Um, I bet I bet um, the meat industry is thinking, well, maybe we should, you know, decentralize these huge, enormous, yeah. extremely cost-effective but very brittle meat packing plants. I mean, about four plants um, in meat processing plants process about two, three quarters of Canada's meat, um, red meat. So it's extremely concentrated. That's very efficient economically, but maybe we'll move into a future where things are a little bit more expensive and we have a few more plants in British Columbia and Ontario than as opposed to all of them concentrated pretty much in the prairies. Right. Um, so, so I, And those will have cost implications. We may end up with a more resilient system, but I think we may end up with, with a more expensive system. So we have to be mindful of, of the impact that this will have on, on low-income people. Well, we have certainly learned a lot about our food supply system in this whole situation, haven't we? Dr. Fraser, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. That is Dr. Evan Fraser, director of the Errol Food Institute at the University of Guelph, talking about food security, prices at the grocery store. Yes, they probably will slightly go up, but uh, does that make it more resilient? And it sounds like yes, in terms of dealing with situations like this pandemic. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. So we are hearing this morning that the Canada-U.S. border is going to remain closed for land crossings for another 30 days. Now, that's according to reporting first by Reuters and confirmed by the CBC. Meanwhile, a new poll from Ipsos Public Affairs shows that Canadians support that border closure and they are concerned that if we do see a second wave of COVID-19 developing, that they want to see a fast reaction to that. That would include a potential shutdown. For more on this polling, we're joined now by Daryl Bricker, who is the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Good morning, Daryl. Morning, Simi. It, it, from the polling that you guys have done, it sure sounds like Canadians are very engaged and concerned about Canada's approach to COVID-19. Yeah, particularly when they look at our neighbors to the south of the border. Um, So what they see is the absolute worst that can happen is what they're seeing on the nightly news about uh, the United States. They compare and contrast that to what they see in their 
their home province or their home community, their home city, and they think we're in a much better position, so they don't want that to come here. Uh, and uh, the reason that they believe we're not in that situation is because of the approach the governments took very early in Canada uh, to shut things down to prevent the spread of the disease. So they know that it works, and if something happens like a, a second outbreak, they're pretty strongly supportive of doing something similar if that stops the virus. And when we talk about strongly and supportive, what kind of a number are we talking about here? Well, when we're talking about keeping the border closed, it's about 85% of wow. us that, that think that. Yeah, and, and you know, it's, we very seldom get situations in which 85% of Canadians agree to anything. Yeah. You know, even the color of the sky or anything of that nature. And we've been seeing numbers like this on just about everything that we ask about COVID. So the alignment between Canadian public opinion and what the Canadian governments are doing at, at, at all levels is the strongest I've ever seen on anything. Interesting. Okay. And what about, uh, how do we feel about the idea of another shutdown if we do get a second wave? Well, 83% of us think that that would be the way to go. Now, what that exactly means, uh, a little difficult to say. I don't think that people uh, in the on the public health side would be contemplating a general shutdown unless there's a really major outbreak. It's probably going to be something more specific than what we've seen in the past because people have learned a lot um, over the space of the last several months. But uh, the range of ability to act, given that level of public opinion, is obviously very strong. Right. And also, it looks like from your numbers here that the idea of traveling to the United States for any reason is not very popular. No. Uh, too risky to travel to the U.S. this year, 93%. And as I said before, you don't get those kind of numbers on just about anything. Now, the, the thrill seekers, by the way, in case you're wondering, are younger men. Ah. Uh, they're, they're people who on all of these questions are a bit lower, but still the strong majority of even younger men are saying, no, it's probably not the time. Okay, but over these are numbers, Daryl, though. Like, you're right. When we talk about polling, it's rare to see numbers this high on any subject. Yeah, um, and normally what I'd be talking to you is about the difference between, say, for example, British Columbia and Ontario or Ontario right. and Quebec, and there's really not a lot of variation. The only places that you do see some variation are between rural areas and uh, in urban areas, uh, but even then it's a, it's a question of intensity, not in terms of overall level hmm. of, of support. So people who are living in places where they're, you know, they're less likely to come into contact with others, probably have a, a bit of a different point of view. But in terms of their overall perspective, uh, they have a strong point of view as well. Now, when it comes to wearing masks, this is an issue that has been quite contentious south of the border and in some other countries. How do Canadians feel about it? Well, they think, first of all, that in the 80s, again, that masks work. But secondly, we're already doing it. 71% of us say that we're, we wear masks whenever we go into public places. In fact, 41% of us put on a mask before we even leave the house in any circumstance. And the reason is because 82% of us, sorry to throw so many percents at you, but 82% of us, again, incredibly strong numbers, think that masks work. Uh, I think where the public health officials have kind of got this a bit wrong is that they're focusing on whether or not the uh, um, that masks actually prevent the spread of the disease. That that view is over in the minds of the public. Uh, they believe that it does. Uh, but more, more importantly, what they see a mask as is a symbol of somebody taking safety seriously. Right. Uh, so that's why they, they support wearing the mask. They're, they're doing it themselves, but they're looking at other people. And if you're wearing a mask, they, they assume that you're probably doing the other things that are associated with, uh, with safety uh, as well, if you make that type of commitment. So masks are almost like a, a badge of approval 
for mm. uh, somebody to being safe to go uh, close to. Daryl, it's remarkable to. in this whole situation that, you know, I'm sure you guys are going to be writing books about this and social scientists will be uh, the kind of collective agreement that so many Canadians have come to on the issues of this pandemic. Yeah, they really have. And, and but the other thing, Simi, is the subtlety of it. I mean, we, we get, uh, you know, really strong perspectives from one side or another that tend to be just, in some instances, wrong. So, for example, the idea that, that masks are contentious. No, they're not. Hmm. <laughs> the public actually made up their mind. Yeah, there's, you know, uh, as I said before, you know, 82% say that masks work. So there's 18% of the population that doesn't believe that masks work. Uh, you know, there's 38 million people in Canada. 18% is a lot of people. But they're not even close to the majority. That is so interesting. Anyway, Daryl, thanks so much once again for talking to us. My pleasure. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. A couple of months ago, you may remember, the Vancouver City Council passed a motion to open up some streets more to pedestrians, what they called pop-up plazas. Well, there are now nine of those all over the city. We want to talk more about the success of this particular program. So joining us now is Lisa Parker, the branch manager of street activities for the city of Vancouver. Lisa, thank you for being here. Thank you. Good morning. I'm, I'm pleased to be here. Thanks for having me. How popular do you think these pop-up plazas have become? Um, so the initial feedback has actually been overwhelmingly positive. Um, so we're hearing different feedback from both the businesses and the residents that are the pop-up plazas are in the neighbourhoods of. Okay. And so you think that these have been successful, despite the weather not being great. People are still using these pop-up plazas? That's correct. I mean, it is Vancouver, so I think our, our Vancouverites are quite resilient for the weather. Um, as we've started to put out the barriers to transform these road spaces into people's spaces, we immediately saw people pouring out to use them. Right. So what is the staying power of these plazas, though? Are they just pop-ups or are they going to be hanging around? Um, so we've really gone into it because we are moving quite quickly on these. Um, and so we're really moving into to see what works. Um, so we're trying to be as flexible as possible to hear feedback. And what's working, we'll continue to um, to move those forward. We're not going into any of these saying that they're permanent um, or any sort of preconceived notions around how long they can stay. Um, we're really looking to see what, we're, what we continue to hear good feedback on. We'll continue to work on those. Okay, so as long as people like them and people use them, they're going to hang around. Exactly. That's what we're trying to move forward with. And then I think what we can try to do is, as you said at the beginning, council really directed um, staff to move quickly on um, creatively reallocating our road space. And we'll continue to report back to council as we're hearing um, more feedback on them. Yeah. What are businesses in the surrounding areas saying about them? So we've really approached this in, I would say, a reactionary state. So we uh, we are creating these spaces where there is interest and request. So we're not picking a location that makes sense and bringing that forward for the businesses um, to have to respond to. These have been actually been initiated by the businesses or the BIAs. So with that, we've really been focusing where there is interest. And so we're hearing very positive feedback around um, the businesses as well as the neighborhoods as a whole. Okay, so what is the potential for seeing more of these? So we are continuing to move forward and we do have a few more coming. As you said, we do have nine in place. 
Um, and we are continuing to work on some with some work coming this coming week and next week on Robson Street in particular. Um, and then continue to work on Davy um, and we on Davy Street, and we do have some coming in the following weeks on South Granville as well. Has this kind of informed future decisions as well, Lisa? Like this is a new approach, right? Everybody had to kind of scramble to deal with the pandemic and the shutdown. What do you think this will change moving forward and how the city approaches these things? Um, one, I'd say there's there's a few opportunities for that. One is how we actually approach a gate engagement on things. Typically, we do try to have. Um, a lot of discussions prior to um, really testing anything like this. And I think that's the key word moving forward is that this is a way to test spaces and allow how pe- to see how people actually do respond. Um, and I do think that the other opportunity is that this will really inform some longer term pu- public space policy and, and physical built form opportunities. Um, I think Vancouver as a whole, we really do value public space. But if there is a chance to see a positive out of out of everything really terrible coming from the pandemic, it is a chance to see the role of public space as a way to support people walking, cycling, um, and really an opportunity to, to value and to measure the social connections that happen within our public space. Does it also show how how quickly we can be creative, like we can actually make things happen? Yeah, that's a great point. So really, um, like our efficiency for rolling these out has really... Um, been quite uh, something that we've worked really hard very quickly on. And it is, it's something that we can, I think we can really move forward with is efficiency around our processes. Okay. So for now, if you're enjoying them, keep on enjoying them. Yes, exactly. And, and I, I just want to stress that we recognize we're doing things quickly. So evaluation is going to be a really critical part of this. So we are monitoring these spaces to at least see how people are using them and what are the tweaks that we can do to keep to adjust those. And we are welcoming public feedback throughout this. Okay. And how can people give that feedback? And um, we are looking, we do have an online survey, um, which is live now. And, um, oops, sorry. Um, and we are, um, we are, we do put out a sign to have a general email so we can actually collect feedback that way as well, or through the businesses as they're hearing feedback um, from the users. We're collecting that from the partnering businesses as well. All right, Lisa, thank you very much for your time. Great. Thank you. Have a good day. That's Lisa Parker, the branch manager of street activities for Vancouver City Council, dealing with this issue of pop-up plazas. We've got about nine of them now in the city of Vancouver. And remember, this is the, the areas that they kind of closed off, made it more pedestrian friendly, just a spontaneous place for people to gather, sit, just more outdoor space when we really needed that. And they've turned out to be very popular, nine right now, but there could be more of them coming. And essentially, they'll be around for as long as they are used, it sounds like. And in the the summer months, you can bet that that's going to be quite extensively. Uh, So we'll see how successful those are. I think every community did some version of this, right? Because we did realize how valuable that shared public space is when people need to go somewhere, but they still need some space, right? Some physical distance from people. This is Mornings with Simi. I think a lot of us have gained kind of a new appreciation for outdoor public spaces during this pandemic. When we were in the lockdown, right, and people were really not supposed to leave their homes, and when you did venture out, even for a walk, because remember Dr. Bonnie Henry said, yes, get out and go for a walk, but keep your distance, 
it was nice to see kind of new things in the neighborhood. And so at one of those pop-up plazas that we were just talking about, there is a new, beautiful, colorful mural. Murals have been very big, right, through all of this. You can see it actually, it's on Helmkin outside the Earls in Yaletown there. Our Nikki Reitmeyer had a chance to speak with the Vancouver-based artist who created that mural, Jean Huang. It seems more and more local artists are getting this very cool opportunity lately to paint public murals. How did you get involved with the mural painting project in Vancouver? So I was first inspired by all the murals that were coming up in downtown Vancouver when all the stores were boarded up. And so I was wondering if there would be any opportunity in my neighborhood of Yale Town to do the same thing and brighten up the area. And so it was kind of serendipitous because after walking downtown and seeing all these beautiful murals, I looked onto the Yaletown BIA Twitter account and I saw that they had put out a call for artists to paint murals. So I contacted them and they offered me a blank canvas. That must have been uh, very exciting and very fun to, to find out, but it must have also been a little bit uh, intimidating that they said, you know, here you go, here's this big public blank canvas. <laughs> yeah, and actually it was my first mural, so it was actually, it was a bit overwhelming, and it's got a tapered wall on one side and then a curved wall on the other side, so it was interesting to come up with a design that could play with the space. Well, yeah, so, uh, of course, since this is the radio, can you describe to me what exactly your mural looks like? For sure. So, I guess it looks different from every side, and that's the fun of it. It's like a game of hide-and-seek. So, on if you look at it from the right side, it's a curved wall, and as you walk towards the stairs, you'll see some perfect shapes. But then as they start to interact with each other, they soften and they morph into more unique shapes. And then all the shapes begin to hug and come together when they're closer to the stairs. So the concept of that is how we shape each other and we fit together. Um, Because even though all the shapes have become more different and unique, they still all fit together. And the other aspect that this idea draws to is how we should also embrace different shapes and sizes. So that's a hint at body positivity. That's our Nikki Reitmeyer speaking with Vancouver-based artist Jean Huang, who created this new mural. It is on Helmkin Street, outside of the Earls in Yaletown. Murals have become such an important work of public art, right, that we have come to appreciate during the pandemic. Think about all the stores that were boarded up. It was so depressing to see stores boarded up in you know downtown Vancouver, but businesses responded by allowing all these beautiful murals to be painted on them that then became kind of an object that people kind of wanted to see. And I know a lot of those stores have actually uh, kept and saved those murals as well. And there have been some festivals. I know they had one down in Gastown to be able to take a look at some of those. So that is beautiful. I have a new appreciation for colorful public art as well. This is Mornings with Simi. We all expected those numbers to be bad. I think there is no no question the economy has suffered. Um, I think they're um, a bit worse than what most economic forecasters expected, and they're staggering. 
All right. You just heard SFU finance professor there, Andre Pavlov, speaking with our Jill Bennett yesterday about the fiscal update that we received. And we know now that BC is facing the largest single year deficit in the history of the province. And these are extraordinary times and circumstances that we are living with. We wanted to talk more about that $12.5 billion number now. Joining us is Carol James, BC's finance minister. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Sammy. Great to be here. Now, you talked about their, the numbers are not without hope, you said yesterday. What does that mean? Well, in fact, if you take a look at the last employment numbers uh, for this past month, we started to see jobs coming back. We started to see people re-entering the workforce, looking for work again, which really is a sign that people are feeling a little more confident. Uh, I don't want to underestimate the challenges we have ahead, and that really was my message yesterday. We do have a long road ahead of us, and this isn't unique to British Columbia. As, as you said, the pandemic has had an impact globally. It's had an impact across the country. We're all going to be facing these challenges. But I've also seen what British Columbians can do. Uh, and I think all of us have seen what the citizens of this province have done when it comes to bending the curve, when it comes to following Dr. Bonnie Henry's orders. And that's the same kind of discipline and the same kind of uh, hard work and the same kind of taking care of each other that I think is going to get us out the other side. But it's not going to be a quick fix. So would you say the last couple of weeks since the entry perhaps into stage three, do you see promising signs there? I do. I think things are going well. Uh, we, we saw in the job numbers that about 40% of the jobs that we've lost since February have now come back. And again, that's a, that's a very good sign. Many of them are part-time because we're taking that cautious approach. And I think that's really key because we have to remember everything we're doing right now is about economic recovery, whether it's putting the health care supports in place, whether it's our cautious restart, because if people don't feel confident to go out and to go shopping and to go to a restaurant, if they don't feel it's safe, then we're not going to see any economic recovery. If those businesses don't have the supports they need, then they're not going to feel confident to start opening again. So everything right now is about recovery. And as I said, the the signs are certainly positive. Perhaps a finance minister is always cautiously optimistic. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's certainly been my approach. Um, But I think, you know, British Columbians have done an extraordinary job, and I know they're going to do that as well as we go into recovery. You mentioned economic recovery then, and we've heard from a number of businesses and business organizations saying what they want from the government now is that plan for economic recovery. When will we see that? Uh, well, well, we'll have our next payment, which is the $1.5 billion, will come in September. But I think it's important to note that we have done a, a huge number. In fact, British Columbia has a, a more comprehensive COVID action plan than any other province. We put supports in place for businesses, $700 million in tax cuts. That's not a deferral. That's an actual cut that happened around property taxes. Uh, support in deferrals. We've deferred taxes till October and we'll take a look at those again to see whether they need extending to give people cash flow and provide that support. We brought in eviction bans so that uh, businesses that could apply for the federal program and their landlords weren't applying couldn't be evicted. Uh, So in fact we've put a number of supports in place but there's an additional 1.5 billion dollars that we're looking at now. Uh, There's an opportunity for the public to engage if they haven't yet. uh, Go on the COVID-19 site for government and and fill in your form. We've been engaging with business with all different sectors. The important thing on the recovery is that it's really going to need to be targeted. We know that the pandemic has impacted different sectors in different ways. 
age categories. We have to do something about our youth unemployment. They've been hit very hard because, of course, many youth are involved in the in the um, uh, hospitality sector and yeah. in the tourism sector. And so no surprise that they'd be hard hit. So we want to make sure we're putting our dollars where they're going to matter. And I think the message yesterday was, yes, we have a deficit as other provinces and the rest of the countries are going to have as well. But we also want to make sure that we put the supports in place for people and businesses because that's going to help us with economic recovery more than anything else. Can the tourism industry expect more supports then in the weeks and months ahead? I mean, we're hearing from, you know, just one example, Pan Pacific hotel workers who say they need the government's help because they're being essentially losing their jobs. It's a really tough time, no question, for the tourism uh, sector. That's one of the hardest hit areas. We have provided money to the regional tourism uh, associations to be able to begin advertising. I've been really heartened to see the number of British Columbians who are taking vacations in the province. Um, There are areas of our province where you're starting to see weekends already booked up until the end of the summer because people are really taking that seriously. So I think we all need to do our part. And yes, we're continuing to work. The tourism minister is continuing to work with the sector to look at what other supports can come forward in the next payment that we've got around economic recovery. Okay, so when do you think, so these, these numbers that you showed us yesterday, when do they, what, what do they go up to? What month do they go up to? Uh, this is a year. So, so we predicted the $12.5 billion would be the fiscal year. Uh, so that will take us to March 2021. Um, these are numbers, a scenario we put together based on the information we have today. We looked at everything from imports, exports, job losses, retail sales, the housing market, GDP growth. Uh, and predicted what it could look like over this next year. I think subject to change, uh, I will be saying over and over and over again, because we don't know what the future will bring. Will we see a second wave? Will we see a vaccine that will, in fact, have the economy recovering faster? Those are all unknowns. So this Mm. is simply a scenario, but we felt it was important to put the scenario out, and then we'll make changes in September when we bring forward our first quarterly report, again when the next quarterly report comes forward, And then, of course, the budget that will be built for February. Any potential for more tax cuts there? That's something that business leaders would really like to see. Uh, Well, as I mentioned, our our biggest tax cut and one of our largest spends, in fact, was a $700 million on a property tax cut for businesses, uh, for commercial properties. That's already happened. We've deferred taxes, and we'll be looking at those to see whether they need to be extended as well. All right, more to come. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks so much, Simi. Carol James, BC's finance minister, talking about the financial picture, not a good one uh, for the next year for BC. Worst case scenario, $12.5 billion deficit. That's the likes of which the province has never seen before. But as you heard the minister say, she hopes that number is not that big. Uh, In the months ahead, we will find out about that. This is Mornings with Simi. We were just talking with the Finance Minister, Carol James, about industries that need more support. One of them, of course, that has been singled out is the tourism industry, the hospitality sector. And an example of that is what we're going to be hearing about right now. A bit about this in the news, too. A disturbing document from management at the Pan Pacific Hotel that workers say is asking them to voluntarily transition out of their permanent roles. We're going to talk more about that now. Robert Demand is with us, Unite Here Local 40's Executive Director. Robert, thank you for being here. My pleasure. So what is going on here? Well, we've been approached by workers at the Pan Pacific, and what they have been asked, and yesterday was the deadline, was to sign a letter that signs away your full-time or your part-time job 
signs away 20 years of severance to become a casual worker or be fired. Um, this is really outrageous. Okay. And what's the situation like at the hotel right now? Are there guests? What's going on? Uh, there's definitely a crisis, and not just at the Pan Pacific, but across the province. And it, tourism is suffering. There's about 20% occupancy is what we're hearing and seeing in hotels all across BC. 50,000 workers are at risk right now of not having the right to return to work. Um, as th- that's what they're faced with. Right. And what we're seeing employers do, and this is just an outrageous example of a hotel employer taking advantage of the pandemic to strip away hotel workers' rights. So um, what do you think needs to happen here then? Like who should step in? Well, we definitely think that the province needs to step in. Um, and what we want to know is, is this what the, the province and the tourism minister, Lisa Bear have in mind when they say they expect work, employers to work with their laid off employees? You know, the, the province must take responsibility for protecting workers laid off due to COVID. Otherwise, tens of thousands of workers face having their rights stripped away and being fired in this industry. So given that this has gone public now, what's been the reaction since then? Uh, the response from from the from the hotel in particular. This is I'm sure they didn't want to have this kind of all out in the public. By the way, we've asked for a response from the hotel from the hotel association as well. We're waiting to hear back. But what have you heard? Um, it isn't what we're hearing from the hotel association or from the Pan Pacific. It's what we're hearing from fifty thousand hotel workers, union and non-union across the province, which is. No one will give us a straight answer about our right to return to work. We were laid off due to COVID. We did the right thing. The government did the right thing to protect people's health. And now it's being used to strip away years of service. Just outrageous to have worked 20 years as a housekeeper, you know, a front desk agent in a convention hotel like the Pan Pacific, and to be told, look, you have five days to decide. You want your job? Or are you willing to give up those 20 years of service, the ability to have a regular schedule, the ability to come back to work when work is here? Um, This this is a lawyer's trick. And this is to make sure that people signed away their severance if they sign this letter. And I can guarantee you the next step, now that their severance is gone, we will see mass firings at the Pan Pacific. All right, Robert, thank you very much for your time. Thanks. Robert Demand, Unite Here Local 40's Executive Director, representing uh, a number of workers at the Pan Pacific Hotel. They are alleging that hotel management is asking employees to voluntarily transition out of their permanent roles because of the current a kind of economic situation the hotel finds itself in. And again, we would like to hear from the hotel association, from the hotels on this. I'm pretty sure that hotel's not the only one that is going through this. So how are they going to deal with this? Does everybody want the province to step in? And what kind of guarantees do they need here in order to keep the industry potentially viable for the future? This is Mornings with Simi. So what is that right number? You want to get together with family, with friends, but is there a right number of people that can get together without having to worry too much 
about the risks of COVID-19. Well, there's a local mathematician who studies infection, evolution, and public health, and she's trying to put a number on it. Let's talk to her about that. Joining us now is Professor Colane, Canada 150 Research Chair in Mathematics for Infection, Evolution, and Public Health at Simon Fraser University. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Hi, good morning. This sounds like fascinating research. Like, how do you even begin? Yeah, so it's a great question. We um, we looked at this idea of event R. So people have heard about R and RT and these R numbers. Right. Usually you hear about R0, which is the like R0, and it's about the number of new infections that a case is, would cause on average if the whole population around them was susceptible. So and that's over the whole course of their infection. And that's a key parameter in epidemiology that we use to think about infections in populations. Right. We took a kind of different approach and thought about what about an event? What about one infectious attendee going to a thing? And what's the number of new infections they would cause at that event or during that activity? So we looked at reported outbreaks and started digging into what that number might be and also why and how to control it. Okay, so what are the parameters then? I'm assuming no social distancing, everybody just behaving as they would have, say, six months ago. Right, so in the reported outbreaks, there was some distancing. There was a birthday party in Texas, for example, where they said, yeah, we had some distancing, but then they were also in a photo with, you know, everybody shoulder to shoulder. So you're thinking, okay, maybe inconsistent. And then some of them were really before we knew much about COVID. So, um, yeah, they were probably just restaurants or parties or bars as normal. So we weren't sure exactly. Um, But, yeah, the parameters are, you know, social distancing. So how many people are physically near you? And then the other one is transmission. And that's we're kind of thinking masks, but like all the ways to try to prevent physical transmission, like masks and hand hygiene. And you see those plexiglass barriers everywhere. And you see people have to walk on two different sides of the outside pathway, which um, not much advantage there, by the way. Um, (laughs) So all of those kind of physical things. And then the third is just how, well, I guess there's like four, the, the third slash fourth is how long are you there for and how much mixing? Like, are you talking to the same bubble of five people at that whole event or are you every five minutes you're moving to a new bubble, like a cocktail party kind of thing? Because that will just change how many people in total you contact. So when you put all that into consideration, then what did you come up with? So we found out that <clears throat> there are different interventions will work better in different settings. So if let's imagine you're you're thinking about something like speed dating and you're going to talk to 10 people for one minute or one person for 10 minutes, let's say. Um, Actually, those work out on average about the same because the time is so short, you know, and one minute is obviously 10 times less than 10 minutes. And if everything's linear, then you have a pretty low number of expected infections from that those 10-minute interactions, and it's the same if it's one minute or for 10 people or 10 minutes for one person. Right. Okay, so the less you interact with people at a party will determine your risk factor. Well, so so if it's really short interactions in a, in a low transmission setting, so like walking by those hikers on the path. On the other hand, if you're at the choir rehearsal, there was a choir outbreak where almost everybody got infected with COVID. Um, it would be much better to have six mini choirs of 10 people versus one big choir of 60 people because that one infection is contained to their bubble. Okay, and, 
So the reason that makes a difference is just how long the event is and how intense the transmission is at the event, whether it's whether it's bubbles or masks or distancing or whatever that will do best depends on what kind of transmission and event you're having. Okay, so from what I'm hearing here then, Carolyn, is it it is really about you can talk to people, but just if you limit and are careful, your risk is that much better. Yeah, so I think one of our messages is that one of them is, you know, stay away from the crowded, loud indoor settings where people are talking a lot and, and obviously singing choirs are probably out for now, sadly. Um, so that's one of the things. Mm-hmm. And if you if you must do those events for a long period of time, like we're thinking the kind of meatpacking maybe, or the choirs, um, then it's much better to do them in small groups and keep the small groups really strictly separate. Okay, fascinating stuff. Caroline, thank you so much for joining us. Sure, no problem.